For the 50th episode of Cracking Krakoa, I felt it was time to return to the source that inspired this X-Men deep dive project, and now that House of X and Powers of Ten are fully available to read on Marvel Unlimited, it's the perfect time to explore what made the event so special, search for clues that take on new light in the wake of X-Men's Dawn of X, and craft all new theories I didn't see the first time around. Today I'll answer how the theme of breaking all the rules dominates House of X, specifying which rules are broken and what that means for future comics, how Myra X's 10th life holds the secrets for mutant survival, and predictions for the trick Jonathan Hickman has up his sleeve to blow this whole era up and take X-Men comics to the next level. Hello again, I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of Comic Book Herald. This is Crack and Krakoa number 50, The Great House and Powers Reread. If you like Comic Book YouTube channel or podcast, please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing to Comic Book Herald. Links to CBH channels, including new uploads to IGTV and Patreon support, are included in the show notes. And to those of you who've been around for all 50 episodes or just a handful, thank you very much for checking out this content. It's been a new ride that has really gotten dedicated since the launch of House and Powers, so I want to return there to the source again for this 50th issue. Spoilers for Discuss Comics and many Dawn of X comics that have followed uh, are coming in this deep dive into theories. The quote, we have to break all the rules, becomes the apparent theme throughout House and Powers, but it helps to elucidate why that's necessary. What are these rules that need to be broken and how are they identified? In other words, who here is the rule maker? This is where Myra McTaggart and the revelation of Myra 10's 10 or 11 lifelines changes everything. Through the preceding nine lifelines Myra has experienced, she has accumulated the knowledge of all the rules that mutant kind has to break in order to finally survive and thrive on the longest-term plan imaginable. One of the angles I find most intriguing rereading House of X and Powers of Ten is what separates Myra's Life Ten plan from the previous nine, or really previous six, since those are the lives she spent trying to preserve mutants. I theorize that all the changes in this lifeline, however apparently minor, are with great purpose, or at least they should be if mutants are to find success. This is a big reason why I find Powers of Ten so utterly compelling on rereads, as visions of future lifelines in Year 100 or Year 1000 are full of attempts at mutant triumph, only to be met with defeat after defeat. It's essential to remember throughout the Dawn of X that Mars' tenth life, what may be her final chance at all this, isn't a stab in the dark. It's based on literal lifetimes of failure. Radical shifts are necessary to succeed. Otherwise, as Emma Frost puts it, what's going to make it dif different this time? What exactly has changed? Rules. Number one, mutants are exterminated regularly over and over, and they mostly stay dead. As Professor X says at the end of House of X number four, every victory, ash, every triumph, defeat. They've murdered so many of us, the world has grown used to it. Culminating in the dramatic resolution, no more. Also a deliberate inversion of Scarlet Witches decimating no more mutants in the wake of the House of M event in Marvel Comics circa 2005. So in Life 10, how do Myra, Magneto, and Professor X plan to break this rule? The first significant measure is taken in House of X number 5, when the recently deceased X-Men lineup that blew up Project Orcus's mother mold and apparently stopped their plans to eventually activate a Nimrod are all resurrected in an emotional ceremony in front of Krakoa. Resurrection protocols are promptly explained, and long story short, a combination of Cerebra's essence, backups of all mutant kind, Mr. Sinister's genetic base, and the Mutant Five combining their powers create an all-new scenario wherein all mutants can be brought back from confirmed deaths. We've also seen in X-Men number 7 how the Crucible will restore depowered mutants. Hickman's vision for X-Men pulls no punches with the great pretender Wanda Maximoff, longtime Avenger and more recent fake mutant, responsible for depowering nearly one million mutants in the post-House of M M-Day decimation. 
In order to rectify this injustice and restore mutants to their powered abilities, mutant kind avoids suicide or euthanasia in favor of a Roman gladiator arena sword fight with Apocalypse, at least in the initial example we've seen in the Dawn of X. Mutants have to fight for their birthright and in so doing earn the gifts of death and resurrection on Krakoa. Digging into the details of Resurrection, it's not just the fact that Resurrection is an option on Krakoa, it's the specifics of the five that perform these Resurrections, in particular the inclusion of Proteus, the son of Moira McTaggart, that has me particularly interested on this House and Powers reread. I'm going to come back to this for the final rule breaking as well, because I'm pretty fixated on the theories and possibilities here, but for now let's just consider the following. I'm positing that Proteus is new to Lifeline 10 from Moira's journals and powers of 10 number 6. If he wasn't present in Life 9, this would confirm, in theory, that the Krakoan nation-state existed in Moira's ninth life, but without resurrection protocols. They would have lacked the proper reality-warping abilities. Plus, Moira's journal indicates this idea stems specifically from Charles Xavier in Life 10. Likewise, Moira's fifth life, in which she embraces Xavier's dream and they move mutant kind to a protected habitat away from humans, is very similar to Krakoa, or really Genosha, Utopia, any of the mutant getaways attempted over the years in X-Men comics. It makes sense to me that a key difference would be the addition of Proteus and the Five and Resurrection Protocols. Notably, Lifeline 10 is, only one, is the only one to call out Moira marrying Joseph McTaggart, which, given the awfulness of that pig, is a huge why-would-you-do-it-otherwise. And giving birth to Proteus in Moira's 31st year, again, it's the only Lifeline that calls that out. This alone doesn't mean the events didn't happen in any of Moira's other lives, but coupled with the journal entry, it certainly gives the implication that this coupling is a first, and that it's done entirely because Joe provides a genetic match for the birth of a reality-warping mutant. Again, after her first life, Moira doesn't take time to have kids. She's on a mission. This is a cold, calculated decision to fulfill the potential of mutant resurrection and perhaps much, much more. Stick around to the end to see what I mean by that. And finally, on this first rule of breaking the cycle of death of mutants, not only is the sting of death systematically alleviated, but the limits of evolution are very likely completely upended. This will be especially important when we get to rule number three, but the process of resurrection allows for mutants to come back with enhanced power sets, performance levels greater than the ones they had prior to death, and eventually all sorts of custom modifications. This is teased in both the event data pages and again in X-Men number seven. The ability to resurrect mutants with Omega level power sets added to their own is a game changer if and when mutant kind can get there. Rule number two, schism. Mutants are never truly together always butting heads over plans and approach and philosophies. Professor X dreams of peaceful coexistence with humans, Magneto dreams of mutant domination and war, and Apocalypse dreams of weeding out the unworthy and unfit. The list goes on and on. Breaking this rule requires unity. As Professor X tells Magneto, apart we always lose. We believe it's only together that you and I, that all our peoples, can survive. They've had peaceful moments, sure, but this is true no-turning-back togetherness. Even with this knowledge, the road to unity is full of complications. Whether it's Moira and Charles losing Magneto in 1991's X-Men number 1 to number 3, or even broader differences of vision between Professor X and Magneto throughout all of X-Men history, it can be easy to undersell the complexity of actually bringing all mutants together, something that has clearly taken years in X-Men comics history. Whatever the path though, Moira's lifelines, mutant kind is never united like they are in Life 10. After all, one of Apocalypse's first moves in Life 9 is to kill Xavier, and later Magneto. Likewise, Myra's lives turn to the various leaders in turn, Professor X in Life 5, Magneto in Life 8, and Apocalypse in Life 9, rather than this final call to combine their efforts. 
It's not like the X-Men have never teamed up before, you know, with quote-unquote villains. God Loves Man Kills stands out as a personal favorite example. But this instance stands out because of the scope of the Alliance, truly all mutants, and because it's clearly a summation of Moira's learnings rather than another individual approach. Rule number three, this is the big one, we always lose. This is Myra's hardest learned truth and the hardest rule to break because it is, in reality, the entire ballgame. Nimrod will ascend. Rise of machines and post-humans is inevitable. And evolutionary biology cannot compete. Mutant kind just can't stop losing. In truth, we don't yet know the final answer to breaking this rule. And we won't until Jonathan Hickman decides his years-long plan for X-Men has reached a finale. Nonetheless, there are enough clues in House of X and Powers of Ten, plus preceding years of X-Men stories, to theorize ways to break the chain of Lost. I'll start with some of the simpler ones and work my way up to the more expansive theories. In the wake of Powers of, X of Ten number six, revealing humanity's genetic engineering and post-human state are an even greater long-term enemy than previously thought, the librarian asks Moira X number six and Wolverine what happens when humanity stops being beholden to its environment. My takeaway from that, and the statement that evolution is no match for genetic engineering, is to flip the question. What happens when mutants stop being beholden to evolution? To me, this sounds like Mr. Sinister's entrance music. I'm hearing Robin's dancing on my own. I don't know about you. Sinister's genetic engineering efforts and those resurrection-infused upgrades we mentioned earlier feel even more essential. In Life 9, Sinister's fourth-generation chimeras, chimeras? And are omega-based, and although the hive mind chimeras are a part of Sinister's ultimate betrayal of mutant kind, the idea for an army that strong remains tantalizing. It would also explain Krakoa's stated goal of omega-level mutants as the most valued natural resource of mutant kind. Again here, the idea of, of breaking the chain of loss and not being subject to pure evolution is something that has come up time and time again, post-humanism, making supermen loses, potentially, to mutants making their own crafted version of Superman. Importantly, and this is where the idea of true rule breaker falls apart, Sinister's engineering is not actually part of Myra's plan. Instead, it's a decision Professor X and Magneto make without her cons consultation or approval. Again, from Myra's journal entries, it's clear she disapproves, perhaps understandable, given Sinister's betrayal of mutants and the lingering thought that her lifeline with Apocalypse might have worked, but for Mr. Sinister. Okay, two more quickfire theories for how mutants break the losing rule. Could Okara be another game changer? In the timelines of Myra's lives, only Krakoa is mentioned. For example, the mutant nation state that exists in Life 9 but falls 30 years after the first generation of sinister mutants. Presumably, Apocalypse and Myra rescued the first horseman from the same fate as described in House of X number 5, in which the islands are separated, but the fall of Krakoa later isn't the fall of Okara. This could easily just be convenient naming. Chicagoans still refuse to call our largest building anything other than the Sears Tower, after all, but it could be more. Perhaps making Krakoa whole is way more meaningful to mutant kind's success than we yet realize. Likewise, the idea of mutant leverage is truly unexplored in our knowledge of Moira's past lives. Krakoa's life-changing, and in some cases life-extending drugs, for humanity could be everything from new ideas that buy time and resources to part of a plot that ensures humanity can't rise up to post-human achievements. Krakoan flowers could also be a trick Myra's pulled before. We simply don't know yet. This is also where we really start to tap into the following quote from Myra. There can be no precogs on Krakoa. We cannot, will not, tolerate mutants who can see the future. What is it exactly that she's so terrified of mutants discovering? Regardless of the answer, we're definitely not done with these questions of leverage and the purpose behind them. 
I was struck rereading the comics that on the Mutant Diplomacy data page, Wakanda's status for rejecting Krakoa's drugs is both unique, they do not need mutant drugs, and colored in red, a coloring choice so far only utilized for absolutely game-changing turning points in the Hickman era of X-Men. My first thought is a competing drug war from Wakanda that brings the nation into conflict with Krakoa. A Wakanda-Krakoa war sounds very much like the type of Marvel event that could be on the horizon, but it's likely something far more inventive, and I have to admit that's very, very exciting. With all that said, let's now get into the three biggest theories for how Myra and mutants are planning to break the chain. Cue Fleetwood Mac on your soundtrack. First, let's dig into the seemingly simple ways Moira's ninth life benefit the tenth, and how that lays the groundwork for something far more complicated. In Powers of Ten number 3, Myra's ninth life learnings are obtained in order to take out Nimrod early in Life 10. Nimrod activation is seen as a point of no return and an assurance of decades-long war accompanied by unimaginable levels of mutant death. The X-Men of Life 10 take this knowledge and send a mother mold crashing into the sun in House of X number 4, losing their lives in the process, to keep Nimrod from activating. As we've seen in X-Men number 6, this may not have been successful. As Mystique discovers a Nimrod still in development with an Orcus, perhaps even accelerated due to mutant kind's actions. Another, perhaps more unsettling possibility, couldn't Year 100 Nimrod have grabbed the Grand Mutant plan from Apocalypse's head and traveled to Moira's 10th life? Originally, Nimrod is a time traveler from the Days of Future Past timeline. This would have a similar feel. After all, we never actually see Life 9 Apocalypse killed. The battle ends with Nimrod firing some sort of energy into his skull. With all this, I think it's key to remember Moira is not infallible. In fact, by her own admission, she has done nothing but fail, despite her Herculean efforts. Just because it's part of her carefully acquired plan does not ensure any degree of success. Speaking of traveling across time and space, the real rule break could stem from travel across Myra's lifelines. In Powers of Ten number 6, the librarian explains to Myra and Wolverine that by existing outside of space and time, a Dominion, essentially a godhead composed of interconnected black holes, could see outside of all Myra's lifelines, effectively retaining their knowledge, status, and power regardless of Myra's death and start of a new lifeline. Earlier in Powers, could Deathseed Zord, Rasputin, and Omega from Life 9 have traveled similar routes via black hole? The repetition of language, both scenes reference singularity and black holes, and ominous foreshadowing, do you have any idea what lies at the heart of a real black hole, feels like near certain connections. Maybe Moira did scheme for Rasputin to enter the black hole with Zorn, and bringing her 4th gen Chimera DNA through to Life 10 will advance the cause of mutant genetic engineering without any need for Mr. Sinister. Maybe that's why she's so bothered by Professor X and Magneto's inclusion of Sinister without her. Although, I'll admit there, why not just tell them this part of the plan, if that was the case. It's dense and full of complex science fiction in the hands of Hickman's Kree Supreme Intelligence Master Brain, but I really think there's something to this, and it would be a game-changing shift in Moira's 10th life were they able to have these allies essentially outside the scope of Moira's 10 lives in traveling via black hole. Plus, consider the unknown logistical status of things like Sabretooth's Exile and Krakoa's No Places. The undefined science of either option presents the possibility for connection to alternate life black hole travel, or even better yet, as a handful of eagle-eyed Kraken Krakoa readers have suggested to me, a future Exiles comic book starring Rasputin, Deathseed Zorn, Omega, and Sabretooth, and perhaps a few add-ons. Considering the original early 2000s Exiles written by Jed Winnick was one of my favorite, mostly mutant books from the early aughts, I love the ways this could weave into the narrative of Hickman's X-Men moving forward. More con concretely, there also has to be a reason Rasputin is among the Tower and Cardinal on the tarot cards that Moira discusses with Charles in their park meeting scene, which is reproduced twice, across House and Powers, as if to emphasize the importance. Look at the language used for Rasputin's card. 
See the magician, the metal metamorph, the great sword, and the girl with one foot in two worlds. We've seen plenty of the recurring tower across a variety of places, including the Powers of Ten home of Nimrod the Greater, and in X-Men number 7 is the Cathedral of Nightcrawler on Krakoa. To my mind, next up would be the reemergence of a character with one foot in two worlds, or in this case, perhaps lifelines. The second major theory for mutants breaking the we always lose rule is hidden in plain sight, to the point that it's almost too easy when you start thinking about it. In Powers of Ten, the X-Men Year One is the dream, and Year Ten, where we are in the present-day Krakoa story, is the world. Thing is, the world has major meaning in X-Men comics, and I'm increasingly thinking that applies to Hickman's narrative. What is the world? In short, spoiler, it's not short, the world is an environment developed by the Weapon Plus program, the same one that experimented on Weapon 10, Wolverine, and Weapon 13, Phantom X, specifically designed to run controlled, accelerated time to conduct experiments on weaponized super soldiers. Most frequently developed weapons are for the purposes of winning the war against mutants. We're introduced to the world in the pages of New X-Men during the debut of Phantom X. The way the pieces add up here is kind of thrilling. Grant Morrison concept? Check. Phantom X, last known owner of the world, giving up his body to Xavier, prior to Hoxpox, in the Charles Soule-written Astonishing X-Men? Check. Trying something new, by whirling out a Krakoan nation-state, and then watching the professor move his findings to reality? Why not? To me, this feels like the big button Hickman keeps talking about in interviews when he talks about the next stage of things and how there are deliberate plans to blow up the status quo whenever the Dawn of X hits a wall. I think it's very conceivable the X-Men are in some form of the world right now, perhaps without their knowledge or consent, hence the secrecy from Moira and company. The ambiguity of the powers Year 1, Year 10 could be explained by world time as well. For example, Year 1 is both Moira meeting Charlie and Moira and Charles visiting Magneto at his Bermuda Triangle Island M, likely after Uncanny X-Men number 150. This makes sense, too, because they're waiting for that post-Kitty moment when uh, he starts to soften. That post-Kitty moment being Magneto views a seemingly dead Kitty Pride and, and sort of the process of him becoming allied potentially with the X-Men, sort of an anti-hero, begins. If this is all meant to be a literal year one, it's cramming a little less than 20 years of X-Men stories into their first year. More importantly, this also completely falls... Uh, fails Moira's timelines where we're told Moira meets Xavier at age 17 and they recoup Magneto when she's 43. While year one can still easily just be a category rather than a literal year, I also think it makes a great deal of sense if we're working within accelerated world time. Phantom X describes time in the world as liquid, which is frankly a gift to Marvel creators and editors exploding and exploring as much continuity as House of X and Powers of Ten attempts. Another consideration here is how the children of the vault rival and threaten work within the world. In X-Men number 5, Professor X refers to the Mike Carey and Chris Bacalo creation as their greatest threat, which frankly makes more sense when you consider the vault and the world are very much two sides of the same coin. Here's a Morrison selection on the world from new X-Men number 142. Splicing human genetic material with sentinel microtechnology, we're then able to sculpt the resultant strains through high-speed real-time scenarios using artificial evolution technology. And here's Hickman on the vault in X-Men number 5. Time flows different inside the vault. The ideas behind it is essentially the same as the world, that out here in the real world, time moves at its normal pace, but in there it's accelerated. The difference between the two is that the world is evolutionarily based. The vault, however, is something else entirely. Human adaptation along technological lines, not evolutionary. The slight differences between the two are eerily similar to the distinction Librarian makes between posthumans and mutants in Powers of Ten, number six. Speaking of, Moira's death is a liability. When she dies, the lifeline seems to end. I can't quite get my head around the timey-wimey logistics here. Does this mean she has to be eternal? But this is what she tells Magneto and Professor X in Powers number 6. 
The world allows a test site to work around that, while simultaneously leveraging the adaptive technologies, the Weapon Plus program was integrating into human subjects in order to win their perceived mutant-human war. It works quite well. Rules are made to be broken. In anticipating where the future of mutant kind might be going, the key question still remains, what hasn't Moira tried? That's why my final theory, and the one I'm most excited about, centers around reality itself. Legion and Proteus are particularly fascinating, because the entire purpose for their birth appears to be ways for Moira and Charles to produce reality-altering mutants. To reiterate, after determining their lack of a mutant with the ability to tweak primal matter and give reality a push, Moira, quote, finds potential matches for both Charles and herself to produce such a mutant. If you want, if we're looking for ways to describe gray morality and cold and calculating, I think produce such a mutant to describe your own children is pretty spot on. The reality, pun intended, is that Legion, David Haller, and Proteus, Kevin McTaggart, aren't just mutants, they're omega-level mutants. That means Charles Xavier and Moira's kids account for one-seventh of the known omega-level mutant population. That's an enormous percentage, and not a coincidence, which leads me to believe both are intended for much greater purposes to come. The question, of course, is what those purposes might be. One element that really sticks out to me is that Legion, at various times in X-Men history, has been responsible for two such monumental disturbances in reality that they cause their own new alternate reality. Age in X-Men comics. For Legion, his actions in Legion Quest, aka trying to kill Magneto in order to create a path for his father's dream, lead to the Age of Apocalypse, and later his powers create the Age of X. I won't sink too deep into this, but it's also fascinating that in Age of X, Legion's mind manifests in alternate Moira McTaggart, at the time presumed deceased, as his proxy in this all-reality. He's worthy of his own deep dive, but Legion's the son of Charles Xavier, raised for a time on Muir Island by Moira, and his Omega-level powers are some of the most extreme in all Marvel. There's no way he doesn't play a role in the plan here. For my money, I'm ready for any of the following. Age of Moira, though I think the Moira Millennium sounds better, Age of Sinister, or Age of Destiny, and I quite like that final name. Speaking of Destiny, again, worthy of a solo deep dive herself, but Legion and Destiny have a surprising connection in X-Men as well. For starters, in Uncanny X-Men number 255, Legion, then possessed by the Shadow King in the build-up to the Muir Island saga, kills Destiny during a Freedom Force mission that involves Moira's Muir Island mutants and the Cyborg Reavers. The act results in some sort of psychic merger between, De between Destiny and Legion. In an X-Men number 38, Destiny appears to Legion in a dream to tell him if the dream arises, perhaps redemption is not far off. Legion's interpretation of this message is that Magneto blocked Charles Xavier from fulfilling his dream of mutant and human coexistence, and he attempts to take out Mags, setting off the Age of Apocalypse as the inevitable result. It is possible, though, that Legion misinterpreted Destiny's words, and that actually it was Moira's actions, breaking Charles Xavier early in his life, that kept the dream from being fulfilled. Given their tense, fatal encounter in Moira's third life, Moira and Destiny more or less can't coexist, to the point that Moira says there can be no precogs on Krakoa. In addition to Mystique's clear plans to bring Destiny back, the Legion and Destiny connection remains another possibility around this to throw a wrench in Moira's grand plans. Of course, Legion isn't the only mutant with reality-warping power sets we haven't seen much or any of yet. Other mutants that break all the rules include Nate Gray, who of course we saw most recently in a, yet another age, the Age of X-Men, so he has that potential as well. Scarlet Witch, yes, I know, but of course the one who spawns the House of M and of the decimation of mutants. Onslaught, lot to dive into there. Mr. M, no mega-level mutant. Mad Jim Jaspers from the Alan Moore written and Alan Davis drawn Captain Britain stories, and Jamie Braddock, who we have seen, and finally, 
Franklin Richards, who we have seen a bit of as well. And I'm sure plenty of others. And I'd like you to nominate some in the comments here on the YouTube channel if you have thoughts. Given that five of these reality breakers are on the mutant known Omega level list, Legion, Proteus, Mr. M, Jamie Braddock, and Franklin Richards, I wonder if there's a possibility of another The Five in mutant lore, the Omega Five, who break the bonds of reality in order to give mutants long sought peace. At the end of the day, the only thing I'm certain of is we can expect major shifts to the already shifted status quo developed in House of X and Powers of Ten. Hopefully, by defining the rules of mutants and the need to break them, we'll at least have an inkling of what we can expect when the time comes. On a final note, here's a list of some of the biggest questions or items we still haven't really seen developed in Dawn of X that I'm looking forward to. I'd love to hear what's on your list as well, again in the comments here on the YouTube channel or at Comic Book Herald anywhere online. Mars, what are the mutants doing on Mars? Namor, what are the mutants' connections to Namor and what did he mean when he told Professor X, come to me when you really mean it? How does Myra's sixth life get her to the point in the distant future that she's still alive in the year 1000 landscape? Dominions, black holes, and hard science fiction, I talked about them a bit, but there's a whole lot more to do there, especially with the phalanx. No places. What are Krakoa no places, actually? And that red Wakandan diplomacy I mentioned ain't no way. That's the last we heard of that. Thanks to everybody over on patreon.com slash for supporting the site and the show and making things like 50 episodes of Crack and Krakoa possible. Have a new patron in the Mysterious Benefactor tier this month. Thank you, Eric Hodges, Jeff Zacharias, Trey Conrad, Jesse W., Slatron, Robert Mickelson, Professor Pride, and Steve Brennan for your Mysterious Benefactor uh, support. And thank you to everyone over on the patron for supporting Comic Book Herald. I'm Dave Busing. You can find me at comicbookherald.com, at comicbookherald anywhere online. Look for the best comics ever and my Marvelous Year podcasts for episodes in podcast form. And of course, I hope to see you around Crack and Krakoa in the future. Leave your comments, theories, and thoughts. I want to keep them coming. Been seeing a lot of great stuff on the Crack and Krakoa videos here on the YouTube channel as well. So leave your thoughts in the comments. I'd love to know what you think. Hopefully you were able to participate in the reread of House of X and Powers of Ten here as well and are staying safe and enjoying some comics uh, where you can. Thanks, everybody, for your support and for listening. And as always, enjoy the comics. <laughs>